Amen. If you have a Bible, please open with me to Galatians, the book of Galatians and the fifth chapter. We'll be looking this morning at part three of the kind of mini-series that we're in called The Spirit-Filled Life, and today we'll be looking at the ever-important fruit of the Spirit. Now, this set of verses in Scripture is critically important because by the Scripture we examine our life to see whether or not we are in Christ. And likewise, by the Scripture, we examine ourselves and the Lord works through His Spirit to grow us, to mature us, to grow us in Christ's likeness, to sanctify us as His people. So with that, I want to go ahead and read our text and then we'll kind of reset the stage and and we'll just dive in head first. So Galatians chapter 5, our focus today is verses 23. 2 and 23. We want to pick up at verse 16. This is the word of God. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, You are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, jealousy, outburst of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, And things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, and envying one another. And let's go to the word in prayer, to the Lord in prayer, and let's ask him to make his word active in our hearts today and to convict us of sin and to drive us and draw us to Christ. Let's pray. Father, we come to you now, and as we study the fruit of the Spirit, we ask for the power of your Holy Spirit to be at work in us. For the strength and the wisdom of men fail in this endeavor. To be sanctified by the truth, if we are to to go at this in our own strength, with our own grit and determination, if we are to strive in the strength that only we can muster up, Lord, we might as well close the book, turn off the lights, and go home. But Lord, if your Spirit would come and meet with us and work with us, And work in us today. Lord, miraculous things can happen. Lord, for you are all powerful. You are all knowing. You are ever present. You are present with us here today. Lord, we desire to glorify you as you are here among us. We desire to worship you in spirit and in truth as you are here among us. And we desire, Lord, for you to grow us in the likeness of Jesus Christ. Lord, would you do the work of sanctification in us? Would you reveal sin to us? Would you, Lord, humble our hearts? Lord, would you break up the hard and the stony ground, and would you plant your word deep in us, and would you cause it to bear 
fruit. Lord, you have promised that if you abide in us and your word abides in us and if we abide in you, that we will bear much fruit. Lord, that's what we desire to, to do and to grow in in this next 45 minutes. To, we desire to abide in Christ, to learn of Christ, to see Christ, to, to see where we fall short of the standard of Christ. To be broken over sin, to be taught how to walk in the Spirit, so that we do not carry out the desires of our flesh. Lord, we ask that you would please do this work today. And we ask above all things that you would be pleased to glorify yourself in and through and among us. Thank you for Christ. Lord, we thank you that he took our sin in and upon himself at the cross. The one who knew no sin was condemned as the most heinous of sinners. He bore the the full wrath of the Father in our place so that we could be called sons and daughters of God. What a glorious Savior. What a glorious Christ. We ask that he would be glorified in us today. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. So again, the Spirit-filled life, part three of the Spirit-filled life, we have been looking at this monumental portion of Scripture for a number of weeks now, and it is monumental because it gives such clear instruction as to how we must live as believers. Paul began in verse 16 by giving this command. He said, but I say, walk by the Spirit. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. Make war against your flesh by walking in the Holy Spirit. Paul then told of this great conflict in verses 17 and 18, that the Spirit, the Holy Spirit who lives within us, is in opposition to and at war with the remaining flesh in us. There's a conflict even between the Holy Spirit in us and the law of God because as unbelievers, we would strive to use the law for justification. The Holy Spirit is at war with that mindset. The Holy Spirit is at war with our fleshly, carnal desires. There's a great conflict raging in your soul. Paul then told us of the contrast. It's where we've kind of parked out the last couple of weeks in verses 19 through 23. The contrast between the one who walks in the Spirit and the one who lives according to the deeds and the desires of the flesh. And this is a clear contrast, that those who walk in the flesh will perform the deeds. They will be evident in the life of the one who walks in the flesh that we saw in verses 19 through 21. And the all-important idea that drives the importance of this contrast is that the Lord in Holy Scripture says that if you practice these sins, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. If you walk in and practice these sins, you are outside of the faith. You will be condemned to die and go to hell and suffer just punishment for all eternity. That is the importance of the contrast between the spirit-filled life and the one who lives according to the deeds of the flesh. The one who Christ has saved is indwelt and therefore empowered by the Holy Spirit, and that is evident in the way that you live. Just as the deeds of the flesh are evident in the one who's not in Christ, the power and the fruit and the transformation of the Holy Spirit, of the Spirit of God, because you have been saved by Christ, that transformation is clear and evident. The one who remains in consistent and unrepentant practice of sin proves to lack saving faith. Dear friends, this is of eternal significance. 
So with that warning in mind of regarding the deeds of the flesh, let's turn our hearts now to verses 22 and 23. Consider the fruit of the Spirit. What does it look like to walk in the Spirit? So again, this is the third overall point. We've seen the, the command, we've seen the conflict, and now we're seeing the contrast. The contrast, the fruit of the Spirit. Let's read those fruits, that, that fruit of the Spirit one more time, and then we'll dive in. Verse 23, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. And against such things, there is no law. Now, what we must firstly and most critically and most importantly understand is exactly what Paul writes here, that this is the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the results and the outworkings of the Holy Spirit living inside your heart. This is not the fruit of church attendance. This, though you will hear me scream from the rooftops until the Lord calls me home about the importance of studying your Bible every single day. This is not the fruit of Bible study nor prayer. We'll come to the waters of baptism at the end of the service. This is not the fruit of baptism. This is not the fruit of being a good person. This is not the fruit of any effort of, uh, that man can make or can bring to the table. This is the fruit of the Spirit, exactly as the Lord superintended Paul's hand to write, of course, in the original Greek language, but this is the fruit of the Holy Spirit. It's the outworkings of the Spirit of God transforming the heart and the life of a man. Being the fruit of the Spirit, then, this cannot be attained by you buckling down. This cannot be attained by you bowing up against sin, bowing up to try to walk in the Spirit. This can't be attained by you pulling yourself up by your bootstraps or by you mustering up some great strength and great discipline. Personal discipline is a great and important and often missing need in spiritual life, but the fruit of the Spirit does not come through discipline. It is the fruit of the Spirit. It is God's work in you. This is something that only is a miraculous and gracious work and gift of the Lord. We cannot become holy. We cannot become righteous. We cannot sanctify ourselves in our own strength. This is not then legalistic obedience, nor the mere keeping of a list of do's and don'ts, things to not do and things that we should do, but rather this is the power of God's Spirit at work in God's people, the power of God's Spirit at work in God's people. However, that's only one side of the coin, because Scripture does give us two sides of this coin, that this is the fruit of the Spirit. This is God's work in you. But let's consider some of the rest of the New Testament. The Apostle Paul, who wrote Galatians in Philippians chapter 3, said, But one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward, straining forward to what lies ahead, Paul says, I press on. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says, I reach forward. I press on. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, he says, Do you not know that those who run in a race will run, but only one receives the prize? Run, Paul says, in such a way that you may win. You run, you strive, you labor, you walk, you toil. But Paul would also say, Yet yeah, it's not I, but it's the grace of God that is at work in me. Paul told Timothy, his beloved son in the faith, in his last known epistle in Scripture, 2 Timothy chapter 4, Paul said, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Paul labored. Paul was given too much 
toil and much striving and much discipline. But again, it was not his work, but the grace of God at work in him. We could examine Peter's epistles and find similar ideas. We could, we could look at the three epistles of John and see similar ideas. We could, of course, look at the book of James and understand that faith that's not accompanied by works is dead faith. Clearly, Scripture does not indicate a passive faith or a passive sanctification. This is not a life where we can say we're going to let go and let God and be sanctified by the process of osmosis. No, rather we labor, we strive, we toil, and it is the good grace of God at work in us that gives us that desire and gives us the strength to put to death the flesh. It's an active and disciplined faith whereby we walk and we run and we fight and we prepare and we labor and we give our greatest and fullest measure of devotion to becoming like Christ. That is life in the Spirit. So before looking at the fruit of the Spirit, we've seen the, the two sides of this coin. Let's ask the question, then, what do we do? This is a work of the Spirit, but it's a work in which we labor. So how might we labor? How should we strive to toil in our lives to ensure that the Spirit is leading and guiding and conforming us to Christ? Simply and clearly, it's by living your life in such a way that the Spirit of God can be active in your life. The Word of God is the means by which the Holy Spirit sanctifies His people. You've heard me quote it a million times, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. If you want to live a Spirit-filled, a, a fruitful Spirit-filled life, you give yourself to the Word of God. You must live in the Word. Psalm 119, I think, is maybe the most glorious passage, the most glorious chapter in, in all of Scripture as it pertains to the truth of God's Word. Psalm 119, verse 97, the psalmist there says, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. In verse 129 he writes, your testimonies are wonderful, and therefore my soul observes them. So before we come to the fruit of the Spirit, we must ask ourselves whether or not we have a true love for the Word of God, because that is the means by which the Spirit makes us produce fruit. Do you love the Lord's law? Are His commandments burdensome to you, or are they life-giving you is the hard work because it is hard work to study to to understand the text of scripture and to search your own life to see how the scripture applies to you that is hard work does that hard work of study and meditation does it weary your heart and your mind or do you find it wonderful do you find it life-giving and joy producing if you are to produce the fruit of the Spirit, you must love the Word of God. It must be your greatest joy, your greatest treasure, your greatest instructor. It must be your Bible should be your most prized possession. It should be the thing that you think about when you're lying down, when you get up in the morning, when you're going about your day. The Word of God must flow through your heart and mind if you are to walk by the Spirit. So it's this love for and devotion to God's Word, then, that we must have if we are to produce the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we're going to look at that fruit, and I want to, I've thought about this all week, how to say this. I'm still not sure I've come to the exact right way to word this completely correctly, so hopefully you and the Lord will both grant grace in this. The fruit of the Spirit is a diagnostic tool by which you measure how well, how deeply you're walking in the Spirit. These are not necessarily, and this is where I want to be very careful, these are not exhortations of how to walk in the Spirit. 
These are the outworkings of your walking in the Spirit. So if you are unloving to a family member, your, your response is not to say, I need to be more loving, so I'm going to go walk by the Spirit. Your response should be, I'm not walking in the Spirit. I need to walk in the Spirit so that I will be more loving. So it's kind of, we've got to make sure that we don't put the cart before the horse. You walk by the Spirit, and then these things come. Now, that doesn't mean you go and be unloving just because you don't feel like you're filled with the Spirit on a given day. But you will never properly produce fruit if you do not walk in the Spirit. So let's look in then at, at these fruits, at these characteristics. And as we do, let's examine our own lives. As we go through these, ask yourself, am I walking by the Spirit? The first fruit Paul writes of, um, really not surprisingly, is the fruit of love. But the fruit of the Spirit is love. Love defines who God is in his plan of redemption. Romans 5 verse 8 says that God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. The love of God is on display in redemption. The love of God is on display in his plan of redemption, in his choosing of us. Ephesians chapter 1 verses 4 and 5 say that in love he predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will. So it was his love at work when Christ died. It was his love at work when he chose you before the foundation of the world to come to be in Christ. Love also marks Jesus Christ in the flesh, in his work on this earth. John chapter 15, verse 13, Jesus said to his disciples, Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. So love, simply stated, love marks God. Love is a defining characteristic of God, both Father, Spirit, and Son. Love of God, then, is the greatest measure, the greatest, the greatest source of, of look and indication into your heart as a believer. Love is the greatest measure of the Christian's transformed heart. You might do many Christian things. You might do many things that appear Christian, but if they are not accompanied, if they're not driven by love for God, you have missed the mark. You are a mere legalist if everything you do in the name of the Lord is not driven by love for God. Love is the inward motive that differentiates between legalism and proper obedience. We are called to do God's word. But the question is whether or not you love the Lord as you obey his commandments. Without, without love, any obedience is merely law-keeping. It's merely legalism. You're merely following a set of prescribed rules in order to gain and earn God's favor. But Jesus said in John 14 to his disciples, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Love drives obedience. Love for the Lord should be the primary mark of the believer, but there should also be more marks of, of the believer's love. Your love should affect your relationship with others. First John 4, John there writes, he says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from God that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Jesus said those are the two great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Love marks how you relate to God and how you relate to others. How then should we love others? 1 John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18. Whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? 
Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. In deed and truth. Not just in deed, not just in truth. You love by how you care for and provide for and, and fulfill the needs of those around you. But that's not all. You don't love properly if you don't love in the truth. If you have a, a dearly loved friend or family member and they're walking in unrepentant sin and they also need a meal and you say, let's go to Burger King, I'll get you a Whopper, and then you don't tell them that they are in sin and need to repent before a holy God, you have done no good for that person. We must love in deed and in truth. Ultimately, this fruit of love is manifest by your obedience to the commands of the Lord and your love for others. Because if you say you love the Lord and you don't obey his commands or you don't love your fellow man, you're nothing but a liar. If you say you have love, but, but you don't, if, if you do all these things and yet you don't love, you're nothing more than a, than a noisy, clanging gong and cymbal. You must love, but you must love in the truth. And we could stop there and probably go home and take a week to, to lick our wounds and, and examine our hearts and beg the Lord's grace. But the fruit continues, and, and to get a real picture, we've got to see all of these together. So I, we're going to kind of, I think, be a little bit battered and bruised if we're honest with ourselves, but we're going to keep pressing forward. The next fruit that Paul mentions is the fruit of joy. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy. Joy. Now, highlight this, this truth, this fruit, really with just a simple definition. To, to be joyful is literally just to be glad and to rejoice. It is to be inwardly happy and to be outwardly glad in your interactions with people. That's it. That's what joy is. And, and so you could stop right there and ask the question, am I a joyful person? Calvin offers an interpretation saying that joy describes the cheerful behavior towards our fellow men, which is the opposite of being gloomy or sadly miserable. Now, looking across the room, I, I would imagine almost to a person, we would all raise our hands and say, yeah, I've been around that person who is absolutely miserable no matter what happens. They could win a million dollars and they're miserable. You could cut their hand off and they're miserable. You could feed them a steak dinner and they're miserable. And they bring that gloom and that misery everywhere they go. Those people, frankly, are miserable to be around. We are called to be the exact opposite, to be glad, to rejoice, to, to not bring a, a miserable outlook to every situation. Now again, this does not mean that hard things don't happen in life. This does not mean that we don't walk through dark days and difficult trials. Scripture is clear that there are times when weeping and mourning are right and appropriate. Scripture commands us to weep with those who weep, to mourn with those who mourn, to come alongside of the brokenhearted and to bind them up and to strengthen them and to love them and to comfort them and to encourage them. So don't hear this fruit of joy and think, good night, my world is falling apart, but here the Scripture tells me that even with the world caving in around me, I still have to walk around with my, a smile on my face. That's not always the case. There is a time for weeping. And mourning. But, dear friends, such misery, such sadness, such depression should not be the final mark of a believer. Dear friends, we have an overcoming joy. Why do we have an overcoming joy? Because we have Christ who did overcome. Psalm 68, verse 3 said, Let the righteous be glad. Let them exult before God. Yes, let them rejoice with gladness. Why do you rejoice? 
Why do you exult? Why should you be filled with joy and, and gladness? Because you are counted righteous in and through the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So yes, your world can be falling in around you. And, and while the weeping may last for the night, joy comes in the morning. You will reach joy. Because you have the Spirit of God in you, and the Spirit of God will strengthen you, will hold you. He will carry you through the storm, and then you will get to the backside of that, and your heart will be overcome with joy and rejoicing because you are in Christ, and your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and you will go to heaven. So, dear friends, let us be filled with joy. This is not meaning that we should be trivially happy. We should be abidingly joyful. So we asked the question a few moments ago, am I a joyful person? Let's take that question a little bit further and ask would those who are around you most often consider you to be a joyful person? Uh, th that's when the question gets difficult because you can say, yeah, I know my heart, I'm filled with joy. But those coworkers who are around you every day, the, your, your family who sees you in, in the best of situations and the worst of situations, would they say, yes, Mike is a joyful person. Ben is a joyful person. Ella is a joyful person. Would those who are around you, those who know you, would they say that you are full of joy? You should be. You should be because your debt has been paid. Your sin debt has been washed away by the precious, holy, life-giving blood of Christ. The great Charles Spurgeon said, I do not think that the church rejoices enough. We all grumble, Spurgeon continued, we all grumble enough and groan enough, but very few of us rejoice enough. That should hit us all squarely in the eye. Very few of us rejoice enough. Do you rejoice enough? Do you find such great joy in Christ that even in the storms of life, you find that spring of eternal joy? It's a fruit of the Spirit. It's a result of having life in the Holy Spirit. The third fruit that we'll come to examine is the, the fruit or the characteristic of peace. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And yes, we're going to pick up pace. We're, we'll never get through it if we don't. We'll speed up as we go through these. So the, the fruit of peace. And th this is, uh, in a way, this is a difficult fruit to really examine to understand what Paul is pointing to here. Is Paul saying that peace with God is a fruit of the Spirit? Or is he saying that those who live in the Spirit will have peace with other people? And really, it's important. It's important to make that distinction if there is a distinction there. So I thought MacArthur had a helpful description and explanation here. He said that if joy speaks to the exhilaration of heart that comes from being right with God, then peace refers to the tranquility of mind that comes from that saving relationship. You can almost say that these first three characteristics apply almost distinctly and directly to our relationship with God. You love God, you have great joy, and you are full of peace. You are filled with the peace of God that passes all understanding because you have peace with God. We say that the one who knows the love of God experiences peace with God, and experiencing that peace and that love, you are filled with and have this overwhelming sense of joy. So I ask, do you have peace with God? Do you experience the peace of God that surpasses all understanding when you walk through every trial, every storm, every difficulty? Do you know and rejoice in that peace because you know you are not an enemy? You are a friend of God. He has reconciled you to himself. He has called you, though you were at enmity with him, you were at war. He has called you, and he himself has made peace. Christ is our peace. Do you have the peace of God? So now we'll 
continue on and kind of look almost a, a second, you know, you hear the, the first and the second table of the law in regards to the Ten Commandments, and there's almost a feeling of the first and second table of the fruit of the Spirit as we continue on. So next we'll look at the fruit of patience. Fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and then patience. Patience. The immediate context here with the deeds of the flesh preceding this immediately helps us understand exactly what Paul has in mind here. He just wrote of one of the deeds of the flesh being outburst of anger, that, that person who is boiling over with internal anger. The Greek term here for patience is the word macrothumia. Macrothumia. Macro means long. Thumia means temper. Put those together, and that's one who is long-tempered. The, the term for outburst of anger back in verse 19 was the word thumos. Speaking of this rage and anger, a, a short temper or a short fuse. So one who is patient then is not short-tempered. You are not short-fused. You are not quick to become angry. You are not quick to experience an outburst of anger. Again, this is a fruit of the Spirit then that must begin in the heart. This fruit begins in the heart. When you begin to grow angry, the patience that only the Spirit can give covers up that anger. It suppresses and ultimately roots out that anger. It begins in the, in the heart, and then it works out in the way that you interact with and respond to people. So again, since we're looking at this kind of as it applies to other people, we understand that patience describes a person who willingly tolerates strife with other people. A person who willingly suffers injuries at the hand of others without growing bitterly angry. Calvin said this is one, very simply, who is not easily offended. We could all ask ourselves, am I easily offended? I know my answer to that. In the flesh, yes, I am very quick to become offended. But if we walk in the Spirit, we should be patient. We should be long-suffering. Ask yourself, do I tolerate difficult people with a patient attitude? Every one of us deals with difficult people every single day. Do you tolerate the difficulties of, of personal relationships with patience or with a short fuse and a short temper? Are you slow to become angry? Do you willingly suffer injury, difficulties, and strife at the hands of another? And I would say especially at the hands of a brother or sister in Christ. We all, I think, as those who are in Christ, have a, a natural inclination to be patient with those who are lost. They don't know Christ, so of course, lost people will live like lost people. But do we have the same patience to brothers and sisters in Christ? Now, there's a side to that where you say, no, I don't, because they're in Christ. They should be controlled by the Spirit, and they need to be held accountable. But they need to be held accountable with gentleness, with patience, with love, and with long-suffering. So the fruit of patience. Now, I told you we we're going to speed up. We'll take the next two together. We're going to go so fast, we'll take kindness and goodness together. So we've seen the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, Peace, patience, and now kindness and goodness. These are similar words, and they really work together. Kindness describes a, a kind deed that you would do to another person. It is doing something kind and loving and thoughtful for another. Goodness refers to that attitude of your heart that drives that kind deed. So you see how those work together. A kind deed without the accompanying goodness is just an act of charity. It, it is not glorifying to God. You do the right thing, and you must also have the right motive. You must be good morally before God. Now, I saw MacArthur pull this and tie this in here, and, and I understand exactly where he went, so I'm going to use it as well, understanding that Romans 5 is not this exact same context. But there's some tie-ins that we can get. Romans 5, verse 7. It says, For one will hardly die 
for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. For one who is good, someone would dare to die. Someone would willingly die for a good person. That's that's the same term, the same Greek word for goodness in Galatians chapter 5. So when we think about that, what does goodness look in our life? It is a life lived in such a way that those who are around you, especially your friends and your, and your family, they would willingly give up their life for you. You know, I, I spent some time one morning this week thinking about that idea of who would I willingly die for or who would willingly die for me? And that list, I think, would probably be pretty short of those who would willingly die for me because outside of Christ, I'm not a good person. Outside of Christ, I bring nothing really to the table. I provide for my family, and that's about it. But in Christ, being filled with the Spirit, would there be those who would willingly die for you or for me? If you are good, the answer should be yes. So in a way, you can examine the goodness, the the fruit of goodness in your life by, by examining the loyalty and the closeness of your friends in this life. If you can't think of, of a sacrifice that someone would be willing to make for you, perhaps you should examine your heart to see if you've ever sacrificed for another. Perhaps you should see if you have walked in these acts of kindness with true goodness as your motive. Again, we're examining these as, as the outworkings of walking in the Spirit. It's not that you're a good person because you walk in kindness and goodness. It's that you walk by the Spirit and the Spirit produces kindness and goodness in your life. Now we move on. There's another fruit, the the fruit of faithfulness. And again, as we're considering this in this kind of context of how it relates to our relationships with other people, let's think about faithfulness in our relationships, the Lord is faithful. The Lord remembers his promises and brings them to completion. We sin, we break our promises to him. We are in a, in a covenant relationship with the Lord and our sins break that covenant relationship. They break the vows of that covenant. And yet the Lord sees his promises through to completion. Just consider the Old Testament. The story of the people of Israel is so remarkable when you think about God's promise and the sin of people breaking those covenant agreements. But God is faithful. God is faithful. Like the Lord is faithful, we must be faithful as well. We must be faithful by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us. And that faithfulness displays itself by loyalty, displays itself by trustworthiness, by faithfulness and fidelity in our relationships with one another. Ask yourself, are are you a faithful friend? Now, let's say, yeah, I'm a faithful friend. I'm loyal to this person to a fault. Don't be loyal to a fault. That's a fault. Don't be blindly loyal in your faithfulness to your friends or your loved ones. Rather, show true loyalty by loving someone and seeking their eternal good. That is biblical faithfulness. That you love someone so much that you will walk through the difficulty of being so faithful to them that you will address the sin in their life. Because it is not loving to let someone continue in sin. So to be a truly loving and loyal and faithful friend, you must love, as we saw earlier, in deed and in the truth. Appropriately, with that in mind, the next fruit of the Spirit that Paul mentions is the fruit of gentleness. Gentleness. The word commonly translated as meekness, and even more common than that translation is the misunderstanding and the misapplication and the misinterpretation of what meekness or gentleness is. Vine's Dictionary, which is a very helpful biblical dictionary, 
gives, gives this strong assertion that meekness is manifested by the Lord and commended to the believer as a fruit of power. The common assumption, Vine continued, the common assumption is that when a man is meek, it is because he cannot help himself. But Jesus was meek, and Jesus always could help himself. Vine picks up on that. He says, but Jesus was meek because he had the infinite resources of God, yet he submitted himself to the will of the Father. Meekness, Vine concluded, is the opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. That is a perfect definition of meekness. The exact opposite of self-assertiveness and self-interest. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher, said, To be truly meek means we are no longer protecting ourselves because we see that there is nothing worth defending. The man who is truly meek never pities himself and he is never sorry for himself. So, so those who throw a pity party really are the exact opposite of meek because they're filling themselves with their own self-interest. Meekness, I've heard it described. I don't know who it began with. I've heard MacArthur say it before. But meekness is power under control. You have the power. You have the authority. You have the ability to do what you may want to do. But you are meek and you're gentle and you do the exact opposite of asserting your personal will or desire. Simply, meekness is the opposite practice of pride and arrogance and self-centeredness. So again, let's ask ourselves, am I gentle? Am I meek? Or am I prideful? Am I arrogant? Am I self-centered? Do I seek after that which pleases me? or that which glorifies the Lord and helps and loves and serves others. Finally, we come to the last and I think really very fitting end of Paul's list here of the fruit of the Spirit. We've seen that the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and lastly, self-control. This is one who has power over himself and his desires. He's one who masters his passions and desires in seemingly a very broad sense. You have a broad mastery over the desires and the lust of your flesh. That is what self-control is. It's an interesting bracket and bookend to the fruit of the Spirit. We began with love and now it's bookended on either side of this with self-control. Love, then, we could say, must empower each of these fruits or characteristics. And self-control must constrain these to proper application and proper use. What is the root of true Christian biblical self-control? The root of it is that it's a fruit of the Spirit. If it's a fruit of the Spirit, it means the root of self-control is that you walk in in the Spirit. You walk in self-control because the power of the Holy Spirit works in your life and dominates and controls your heart, your actions, and your reactions. In other words, then, what do you need to properly exercise the fruit of self-control? You need but one thing. You need the Holy Spirit of God living and working in you. So we're going to land the plane and bring this to a conclusion. And this is not how I always conclude a sermon, but I will today. Telling you, I hope that you feel absolutely miserable right now. I, I hope that, that we see these things and are examining our lives in such a way that we see how short we come of meeting the standard. The standard, dear friends, is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It is absolute purity, righteousness, and holy perfection. Put it this way. If you've heard all of this truth of Scripture, all we've done is looked at and defined the terms of Scripture. If you hear this and don't go home a little battered and a little bruised, you need to examine your heart because we should see these things and examine our hearts and we should be broken. We should be humbled. We should be going home 
repenting and asking the Lord to forgive us for breaking His law, for not being always perfectly filled with the Spirit. You can really tie each one of these characteristics to to stories of Christ. I was thinking about this the other day, and I didn't do it, and we don't have time to do it. But you really could take each one of these things and tie it to specific acts of Christ, specific passages of Scripture where you see Christ being all of these things. Do that, and then go examine your life and say, am I loving? Am I joyful? Am I peaceful? Am I patient? Against the example of Christ. So I do hope that you feel a sense of conviction, but I also hope that you are in Christ, and if you are in Christ, you should be encouraged because you should examine yourself in these things and genuinely see victories that you have won. You should see victories that you have won, not because of your own strength, but because the Holy Spirit lives and works in your heart and in your life. The Christian life is one that is marked by overcoming sin. But to overcome sin means that you have experienced sin. You have experienced the brokenness that comes when the Lord reveals to you that you have broken His law and that you stand in need of His grace. You overcome sin, but you have experienced that process of overcoming sin that starts with brokenness that the Lord brings, that then moves to repentance, and then moves to an overcoming and a victory over sin. Once you have come to Christ, though you will still sin, your sin should become increasingly heartbreaking to you. But, don't hear that as, as a statement of loss because when you come to Christ, you will experience increasing victory over sin. You will experience ongoing growth in Christ. And that growth in Christ-likeness is the growth and the outworking of the fruit of the Spirit. You walk by the Spirit so you do not give in to, you do not gratify, you do not carry out the desires of the flesh. Dear friends, may we come to Christ for salvation. May we remain with and in Him and walk by the Holy Spirit so that we prove that we belong to Christ because we crucify the flesh and its passions and desires and the fruit of the Spirit are growing and overflowing in our lives. It's a work of God. It's His grace and it is to His glory alone. Let's close with a word of prayer.